Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information that you need to know. Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is a recording of a policy briefing that we did last week discussing the dip in the Mexican economy and the visit by the Mexican president that will be occurring this week. We will first hear from Chris Wilson and then from Duncan Wood, both of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, both of whom have been on our show before, and we hope you enjoy. Uh, I mean, I thought we would start, you know, the idea of this conversation is to dig in on the Mexican economy a bit. But obviously, the USMCA is just implemented this week. And so I thought we could start with that and sort of take that as a launching pad into a conversation that dives more into the Mexican economy. Uh, so I just want to start by you know, saying just a, a really brief bit about US-Mexico economic relations. I mean, we, since NAFTA was put in place, to a certain extent, even before that, uh, even before 1994, when NAFTA was implemented, have built up across North America and certainly between the United States and Mexico a system of integrated production, of manufacturing platform that spans North America. Uh, and so these days, Mexico has become, because in partly because of the trade war with China, but Mexico has become the United States' top merchandise trade partner. Uh, when you include services, Canada is the United States' top overall trading partner, but they're just right next to each other as our top two trading partners. Uh, and about half of U.S.-Mexico trade, so we have this huge volume of trade, and about half of it is trade in inputs, in parts that are moving back and forth across the border uh, to feed into the production cycles on, on the other side of the border. So auto parts that are feeding you know, factories on the Mexican side coming from the US and vice versa. We sell over $100 billion worth of parts to Mexico every year. Mexico sells over $100 billion worth of parts to the United States each year. Uh, so that's this sort of system that we've built up over time that's really tied our economies together. Then we started to sort of question some of that, that framework of NAFTA. There have always been controversial things about it, uh, but it became, uh, certainly during the 2016 presidential campaign, it became more of a hot button issue than ever. We began this renegotiation process of USMCA after Trump won the election in the United States. Uh, and we finally worked our way through that. Uh, and I say all of that to say that, you know, when I think about this transition from NAFTA to the USMCA, the, the biggest thing that happened is what didn't happen. The biggest thing that happened is that we still have free trade across North America. We still have this framework, this economic framework that allows that type of productive integration and huge volumes of trade that we've grown accustomed to. And, and that we in fact uh, did a study at the Wilson Center and found that there are 5 million jobs across the United States that depend on trade with Mexico because of those productive links. Uh, so, you know, USMCA is a lot like NAFTA. Uh, it, it promises free trade across North America, but it also makes some changes. And those changes kind of come in two different buckets. Uh, the first one is modernization. NAFTA was negotiated 25 years ago before we all had smartphones in our pockets, before pharmaceutical drugs are as sophisticated as they are today, before uh, businesses were using platforms like Amazon and things like that to, to find each other, you know, before a million things have, have happened. And so it, there was a lot that just needed an update. Uh, and, and the USMCA does a lot of that. And according to the international uh, trade, uh, the ITC study, the big economic value coming from the USMCA comes from this updating, this modernization part of the agenda. Then the third part is the rebalancing 
side of the agenda. And that was, you know, when we heard about complaints about a trade deficit with Mexico, uh, worries about factories in the United States moving to Mexico. This was the agenda that was designed to try to take care of that. And really the, the place where we saw that play out the most clearly and saw the biggest changes was in the auto sector. Uh, we saw the rules of origin for cars uh, raised from 62.5% of a car needing to be made inside of North America in order for it to get the free trade benefit of NAFTA up to now 75%. So more parts and materials need to come from within the region. We saw a new rule saying that 40% of a car, 45% of a truck needs to be made by workers earning $16 an hour or higher, meaning they basically need to be in the United States or Canada, not in Mexico. Uh, so that's a way to pull some of that investment back into the United States. And that has a mixed economic impact. It supports the auto sector itself. It supports workers in the auto sector itself. Uh, but it comes at a cost for consumers and for others across the U.S. economy because there's, you know, an overall an added cost to making a car, uh, you know, when you have to make investments for additional parts of your supply chain inside the region and in the United States in particular. So that's, that's sort of my quick, uh, you know, USMCA in, in, in two minutes. Uh, I, I want to say now just one thing or two about the impact or the expected impact of the USMCA on the Mexican economy uh, and, and sort of the framework for thinking about the path forward for the Mexican economy. I mean, and here the key is understanding the context. In even before COVID started, obviously before USMCA was implemented, the Mexican economy had fallen into a point of stagnation. So in 2019, Mexican economy actually shrank 0.1%, meaning it was essentially stagnant. There was no growth in 2019. It was the first year of a new presidency uh, in Mexico that's kind of normal to have a slowdown when you have a transition of governments. Uh, but it was also because there's a lack of investment, not just foreign investment, but a lot of domestic investment. There's a lack of investment in the Mexican economy. Uh, and that's because investors, people, companies with money, weren't really sure what to expect in Mexico. They weren't sure if the rules that they you know, had under the previous administration would hold true under the new administration, whether contracts that were valid under the previous administration would remain valid under the current administration. And so they started to, to hold, hold on to their money. And, and as a result of that, the country didn't grow during 2019. Well, then COVID hit, right? And, and COVID caused economies everywhere to crash, certainly did that in Mexico puts a lot of people at risk of falling back into poverty, you know, puts a lot of the government's plans at risk in terms of, of spending because of lower tax income, puts, you know, the, the whole uh, productive network in, into disarray as supply chains are disrupted and, and things like that. And so the, the Mexican government has begun to talk about the USMCA as a really important tool to help kickstart the recovery. They say it's a way to bring back investor confidence, have a new set of rules, have some certainty brought back to, uh, to potential investors so that they can, you know, get things moving again, that they can start spending money again in, in Mexico. And I, I think the, the important message here is just that, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough. Mex the USMCA is a positive for the Mexican economy, but it's not a panacea for the Mexican economy. Uh, all of the challenges that have led investors to be uncertain, and I'm sure Duncan will go into some more detail about how that's impacted the energy sector and maybe some others, uh, in just a moment, all of that's still there. And it's all acting as a big drag on the economy. You know, the, the regular issues of rule of law and corruption are still a drag on the Mexican economy. 
Uh, everything that was causing the Mexican economy to slow down before is now still there and compounded by COVID. And, and the Mexican government has not had the ability or willingness to, to sort of have a stronger fiscal response to COVID uh, that's needed. You know, I mean, the United States, we're passing trillion dollar stimulus, you know, a couple times, uh, you know, every month, it seems like, well, in Mexico, it's been less than 1% of GDP has been the fiscal response. And so, you know, there's really a lot of eggs being put in this USMCA boost basket. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I, I just don't think that that's a strong enough thing to be betting the house on. Uh, and, and so I'm worried about the outlook for the Mexican economy as a result of that. Let me just end there for now. Let Duncan t go take it over. And Duncan. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, you covered uh, a lot of the, uh, the most important points here, but I, I'd like to pick up on the, uh, uh, to begin with, the, uh, the conversation about USMCA. Uh, some of you may have seen an article that I published in The, uh, in the Hill. Basically, uh, I, uh, I made the point uh, in an article that was titled, A Storm is Coming for Mexico, uh, that uh, although there's great cause for celebration, uh, and it is justified, that Mexico, unfortunately, is going to come under the spotlight very, very quickly. Uh, USTR Lighthizer last week, giving testimony before Congress, recognized that he was ready to launch a series of, uh, of suits against... Uh, against Mexico for violations of USMCA rules, um, for the fact that Mexico hasn't been as attentive as it should have been to uh, implementation in terms of passing new legislation, etc. But uh, what we're seeing is that it's not just that there is a dispute between the, uh, between the two countries. There is really a dispute that's going on, as Chris suggested, between investors and, uh, and the Mexican government. We're seeing complaints on an almost uh, weekly basis from different sectors, uh, not Mexican companies in this case, but U.S. companies who have invested in Mexico who are deeply concerned about the future of their investments. And I'm talking about companies from the energy sector, from the agricultural sector, from the pharmaceutical sector, and from the manufacturing sector. Many of those actors have already been in contact with uh, the U.S. government, in particular with USTR's office, um, we saw a couple of weeks ago uh, that we had uh, a letter from the energy sector, from the fuels industry, to President Trump himself, looking for support from the White House against Mexico. And I'll talk a little bit more about what's going on in the energy sector later on. But this is really because, as Chris suggested, the Mexican government has been engaged in what they're calling the fourth transformation of the country, but really is about undoing a lot of the progress that has occurred in the Mexican economy since the late 19, uh, uh, 1980s. Uh, really what uh, is, uh, is the opening up of the country to foreign investment, private investment, and the free market. The current administration in Mexico, although it is a firm supporter of USMCA, actually wants to uh, see less of a role for the private sector in the economy, one of the stated goals of this fourth transformation that they, that they talk about is to actually separate economic power from political power. In other words, they do not want powerful uh, industries, powerful economic actors having political power in the country. And the president believes firmly that the way to do that is really to enhance this, the, uh, the hand of the state against uh, the, those private actors. And if we see the, the impact of this in the country, then, uh, uh, you know, Chris was talking about the economic downturn. You can see there, going back to uh, January of last year, um, you know, there was slight growth at the beginning of the year last year, but very quickly we moved into negative territory. 
And uh, because of COVID-19, of course, we've seen a, a complete collapse there. The predictions for economic growth for this year for Mexico uh, range from anywhere from a 7% uh, contraction up to a 12% contraction. Uh, I am, I believe it's going to be on the, towards the upper end of that, just simply because, you know, as Chris uh, said earlier on, the government hasn't been supporting the economy and that combined with the already very dodgy investment climate and continuing moves by the Mexican government uh, to force the hand of investors in the country, then we're seeing that there is actually a, a complete lack of interest in investing in the country. Looking at Mexico's uh, trade balance, you know, it's been more or less balanced, but then we see a collapse in those numbers because of uh, COVID-19. And remember that Mexico itself uh, depends upon the U.S. market for 80% of its uh, of its exports. Um, it is a, a country that uh, exports more than the rest of Latin America combined, and that is something which uh, you know they've come to depend upon uh, on ex upon exports. And with the collapse of the global economy, they're being hit very very hard. And when we begin to think about uh, that in terms of of investment. Again, look at these numbers going back to January of last, uh, last year. Gross fixed investment, we have been in negative territory, and now we're really in a, in, a, in a disastrous situation. And these numbers are only up until March of this year. If we look at them now in July, they'll be much worse. We just don't have them yet. And, of course, the big impact of that is actually going to be on, uh, on, on employment. As we're seeing here in the United States, there is a, uh, a collapse in formal employment, um, and so, you know, this is the comparison between the first 17 months of the AMLO administration versus the first 17 months of the previous three administrations. Uh, the first thing that stands out there is, of course, that this is a precipitous decline under AMLO. And this is only up until April of this year. Um, uh, uh, May and June have been disastrous months for Mexico, much worse than April or, or, or March. Um, and so we're likely to see that the formal uh, employment, we're probably going to see losses of more than a million jobs in Mexico. Um, the other thing that stands out is, of course, this, is, this seems to be similar to what happened back in, uh, in 2000 uh, to 2002 under the Vicente Fox administration. A lot going on there, uh, a lack of investment by the government itself, government spending dropping off. Uh, secondly, of course, you had the, uh, the impact of 9-11, uh, of the closing of the U.S.-Mexico border in September, uh, uh, October of that year, uh, of 2001. Um, but uh, compared to what we saw in the first 17 months of both the Peñito and the Felipe Calderon administrations, I'm, Peña, uh, AMLO's uh, uh, performance is pretty disastrous. And this is formal employment. Just to give you an idea, of all employment in Mexico, the latest figures that we have is that 60% of all jobs are actually in the informal sector. So this is measuring, if we can assume that we've probably lost a million jobs in the formal sector, we have no idea how many jobs have been lost in the informal sector. But what we can say is that folks who, are in the, who were in the formal sector are now in the informal sector. And of course, all of this adds together to raise that question of, well, once we begin to move out of the, uh, the immediate pandemic, are we going to see more people moving from Mexico northwards? Are we going to see a resurgence in migration? My gut tells me that the numbers probably aren't there to see a wave of migration as we saw in the first decade of the 21st century. 
but certainly there are going to be a lot of people who are feeling pretty desperate. Uh, let me just talk at, uh, for a while about the, the energy sector because it is a very, very important sector. Um, and almost daily, I receive calls from uh, companies, uh, uh, their offices in Mexico or their offices here in Washington, D.C. or Houston, just talking about how disastrous the handling of the energy sector is, uh, has been in Mexico under the AMLO administration. And uh, you know, first of all, we saw the suspension of oil auctions as well as electricity generation auctions in the country, a process which had begun in uh, 2015 uh, you know, for the first time in over 75 years, the private sector was allowed to bid on oil uh, blocks and for uh, electricity generation. And uh, that was heralded around the world as being uh, a major reform that was going to open up Mexico's economy or its energy sector. Uh, and that all seems to have been put on hold right now by the AMLO administration. We're seeing terrible re regulatory uncertainty, proposals coming through from the ruling party to, uh, to reduce the power and the autonomy of those, uh, those regulators and the regulations that have been coming up some of the statements really do show that there is no longer a level playing field in Mexico. We've seen the erosion of institutions, not just the, uh, the regulatory institutions in the energy sector, but beyond that into the uh, competitiveness or antitrust institutions in Mexico. The national oil company Pemex and the national electricity utility CFE are being promoted by the president on a daily basis. Um, he's taking uh, scarce funds out of the public budget and, pl and uh, plunging them into Pemex. And he's trying to change the rules of the game on both uh, the oil and gas sector, sector and on electricity generation to, uh, to work against the interests of those companies who have, uh, have invested. And this is really, really important when you begin to think about the U.S. companies who are invested in Mexico. Uh, when you think about, uh, you know, ExxonMobil, uh, when you think about uh, uh, Chevron, who are there, um, not to mention the other foreign uh, companies like Shell and BP, we're seeing a really uh, uh, aggressive rollback of the energy reform that, uh, that encouraged them to go in there back in 2013, 2015. Um, and to make matters worse, the, uh, the, the, the AMLO government is not happy about having to import so much gasoline from Mexico. Its goal is actually to uh, eliminate gasoline imports. And that's gasoline that is sold to Mexico by US producers at this point in time, very often using Mexican crude that is processed here in the United States. But uh, you know, this is, uh, this is gonna create a huge hole. And I have to say that if I was working up on the hill right now, this is an issue that I think merits a, uh, a congressional hearing or at least further meetings, um, because uh, what we're seeing is an unrestrained attack on uh, private investors in Mexico's energy sector. Um, they feel incredibly vulnerable right now, and a lot of major US corporations are involved in that. So for those of you who are either working on the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee or who are working on the, uh, the anything to do with energy, then this is something I'd be happy to talk with you uh, uh, more about in the future if, uh, if you're interested. We have a visit by the Mexican president next week. AMLO is coming to Washington. And uh, there's a lot of expectation in Mexico about what that's going to involve, whether or not there will be pressure on AMLO to, uh, to back off from his uh, anti-neoliberal reforms. And there's already a lot of pressure from the, the industries that I mentioned earlier on, 
agricultural industry, manufacturing, pharmaceutical and energy sectors, just to name a few, um, on, the, uh, on the administration to try to get uh, the president and his staff to send a message to Mexico that things need to change. Could you enlighten us a bit on the relationship between President Trump and AMLO? What's the dynamic been like? There's certainly been a lot of rhetoric from the United States side about Mexico, uh, but yet, you know, he's kind of set himself up as a populist president down there, too. So explain that dynamic and how that might play out when he comes to visit. So, uh, I mean, let me just jump in first of all here. I think that, uh, you know, it's one of the more remarkable relationships uh, as we look around the world, simply because... Uh, as Andrés Manuel López Obrador was campaigning for the, uh, for the Mexican presidency, he wrote and published a book called Oye Trump, which means Listen Up Trump, where he came up with all of his responses to uh, Andrés Manuel López, sorry, sorry, to Donald Trump's attacks on Mexico. Um, and he made the point that he would be the Mexican president who would stand firm and strong, who would respond to Donald Trump. As, it's, as it happened, what we saw was that on election night, uh, President Trump tweeted congratulations to Andrés Manuel López Obrador once he, he had won, and thus began a sort of a mini bromance between the two. Uh, we saw that there was a phone call a couple of days later where they spoke in the, mo- in the kindest terms possible. Um, when President Trump has referred to Andrés Manuel um, afterwards, He's often made reference to the size of his electoral victory and the fact that he won the popular vote with 53%. Um, He said that they are friends. Um, But at the same time, President Trump has pushed a Mexican president more than we have seen for many, many decades. And in particular on the issues of migration, trade, and of drugs, the US administration here in Washington has been extraordinarily aggressive. I'm not saying unjustifiably, I'm just saying extraordinarily aggressive with his Mexican counterpart. And what has been the response of the Mexican president? He has rolled over every time to have his tummy tickled, and he has basically done exactly what the, the, the Trump administration has asked him to do. And he has even appealed to his own supporters to say, do you think I should stand up to Trump or do you think I should, uh, I should uh, keep friendly relations? And of course, his supporters agree with him and they say, friendly relations. So he says, I've got the support of the people to do this. So it's a remarkable relationship. Now, uh, the, the relationship between Trump and AMLO is just one thing. There's also a strong relationship between the foreign secretary in Mexico, Marcelo Ebrard, and his counterparts here in the United States, building on, a, uh, on an existing very healthy relationship between the U.S. administration and the previous Mexican administration, in particular the foreign minister or foreign secretary, Luis Videgaray. So we've seen a more personalized approach to the relationship. But essentially, what the Trump administration has managed to achieve with AMLO is that they have pushed harder than we've seen and in a more public fashion, and AMLO has responded and given uh, uh, so basically given what, the, what, the, what, what Washington wants. So that's really the sort of the prelude to what we're going to see. And I see that in the, in the chat here, Aaron, there is a question here. What do we expect from AMLO's visit next week? So I'll, I'll just pile on here and then turn it over to Chris. But, uh, you know, what I expect from the, the visit next week is that we will see not what the Mexicans have been looking for, which is kind of a, a trilateral meeting. They were hoping that the Canadians, in particular Justin Trudeau, would come down, and this could be a celebration of North America. 
But what I think we're, we're left with is a bilateral meeting where there may well be an airing of grievances from the US side. What those grievances are, we don't know. I suspect that the main focus is going to be on drugs and, uh, uh, you know, and, and border issues. Um, some discussion of whether Mexico will continue to, uh, to support US uh, uh, measures to control Central American migration, etc. Um, of course, there will be some nice words about USMCA. Will there be meaningful discussion about plans for the future? I, I don't think so. Will there be meaningful discussions about, uh, about the issues that, we have, that, that I've talked about here? I, I worry that, in fact, they're going to fall by the wayside um, in the, uh, just because of the, the diplomatic nature of this. So it may come down to the Congress itself to continue pushing on these issues. I think that uh, you know what we've seen over the past few days, uh, letters from uh, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and from uh, the a number of uh, House Democrats uh, are letters that have been sent out. I think expressing concern over over labor issues and over the role of Andres Manuel as president of Mexico in general. Those are very very important messages, and I think that it is incumbent upon Congress right now to continue sending those messages. Chris. Yeah, thanks, Duncan. I, I think you've hit on a lot of it. I mean, I think, you know, you suggest that one of the likely outcomes would be that, uh, that the U.S. president or U.S. officials sort of push Mexico further. I mean, we've seen them push Mexico pretty hard for the last few years. And as Duncan says, there have been results associated with that every time the U.S. has pushed. Um, and so I think that's a real possibility. But I also think it's a real possibility that it, it's just a celebratory visit, essentially, that this is a visit. I mean, the AMLO has stated three plans for the visit, three sort of stated goals of the visit. Uh, the first one is to celebrate the implementation of USMCA. Okay, they're going to do that. Everyone's on the same page with that. It's an, it's an achievement. It's something that's been completed. Uh, of course, there will be, you know, some talk around swirling around it about labor violations and whether Mexico is living up to its commitments and that, but that will happen outside of the context, I think, of the public eye uh, of the, the interactions between the officials themselves. Uh, the second sort of stated goal was for uh, AMLO to thank Trump for support on COVID uh, and dealing with COVID in Mexico. This is interesting because, I mean, we, we've done some look, looks back at the Mexico Institute for, of Cooperation during H1N1 between the United States and Mexico and found that there was, you know, actually pretty robust cooperation at that point in time on dealing with that, that pandemic. Obviously, it's a very different set of issues than are, are now on the table with COVID, which is a much bigger deal. Uh, but the, the response truly in terms of bilateral cooperation has not been, you know, it's not absent. The, the U.S. did facilitate the sale of a thousand ventilators to Mexico that are being used in their hospitals to help save people's lives. That's, that's far from meaningless. Uh, but it's not as robust as I think we've seen at other times in terms of health cooperation. So it's interesting that, that AMLO chooses to make that one of the, uh, you know, sort of fundamental uh, pieces, pillars of this visit. And then the third was to recognize migrants in the United States. So that one is a bit outside of, uh, you know, sort of a, a political ask or something with the United States. What's interesting is that in a previous uh, statement back in May, AMLO said that he might actually seek uh, talks, seek to start talks on a bilateral agreement on immigration. 
Uh, I think he was talked out of sort of re-upping that and saying that that would be something he would come to the U.S. and do. Uh, but we may, you know, that would be maybe a surprise from his side if he decides that he is really worried about these criti- criticisms back home. I mean, so, so this is, you know, important thing to just lay out there. He's getting a lot of criticism back in Mexico for making this visit right now. Uh, he's getting criticized that he will be used as a prop in the U.S. campaign uh, season. And, and, you know, in 2016, remember that president, well, at that time, candidate Donald Trump visited Mexico uh, under a different president, under Peña Nieto, uh, and, and was, you know, th- that visit was understood to have been Trump effectively using the Mexican government and president as a prop in his campaign. Uh, he sat. He he went in and he talked about how Mexico would pay for the wall in Mexico uh, as he was invited there on what looked like a state visit. So the foreign minister had to resign afterwards. It was you know a lot of scandal around it. So now there are questions: Is this just a, a sort of repeat mistake of what happened in 2016 in Mexico? So if if he starts, if Amlo starts to really feel that pressure from back home, maybe he will feel need to have an Oye Trump moment to have a hey, Trump, I'm a little bit tougher. It seems unlikely because we've never actually seen him as president stand up to, uh, to President Trump or to any of the demands that the U.S. has made on him. Uh, but, it, but it does seem like there's, you know, could be mild ways in which he, by bringing up issues of migration, which are, you know, harder to, to deal with and which he'll have a stronger stance in favor of migrants defending rights of Mexican migrants. Maybe that's a soft way of, of doing something in that vein. Um, and just to say, I mean, this is just a remarkable visit. I mean, I, I just don't want this to escape us. AMLO has not left Mexico since being president. He is a domestically minded president that does not travel. Uh, this is his, you know, his first trip out of the country. He espouses uh, an old view of Mexican foreign policy that's built on a notion of non-interventionism. So when we uh, had conversations about Venezuela and Mexico, you know, whether Mexico would play a role in supporting Guaido when the U.S. recognized Guaido as the legitimate president uh, of Venezuela, you know, Mexico pushed back and said, we're not going to do that because we don't intervene in, in the domestic affairs of other countries. Uh, so now to have him uh, making a trip to the United States during uh, a presidential campaign is, is just quite a turnaround and, and quite remarkable and I think is leaving a lot of us, even if we're you know, think we may be making sense of some of it, honestly, still scratching our heads, wondering what's going on here. Just to add a couple of things there, because I mean, Chris is, it's very important that Chris points out these, uh, these elements. Part of the big part of the conversation in Mexico is, you know, why is AMLO coming right now? And people are remembering that uh, when that deal for ventilators was struck between Mexico and the United States, and in this case, between AMLO and Trump, um, he said that, you know, we'll work out the details later on. Mexico owes us a favor. And, you know, AMLO was actually asked about that. What was the favor? He said, oh, well, we'll talk about it later on. So now people are putting two and two together and maybe coming to five, which is that this was part of the deal for the ventilators. I, we don't have any evidence that that's the case. But as so very often is the case in politics, optics matter a great deal. And it's made worse by the fact that uh, the AMLO team has said that they have no plans to meet with either Biden or his team. And so there seems to be that, you know, in the context of election season here in the United States, there is clear favoritism being shown by the AMLO team. It's perfectly justified, one head of state visiting another head of state. 
um, that's absolutely fine. But because it's election campaign season, then those conclusions are going to be drawn. And that's why it's become or another reason why it's become so controversial. We had another question come in of what can Congress do now, now being capitalized, to address the root causes of migration, foreseeing a wave of migrants in the southern border due to COVID-19 conditions? I mean, this is a challenging issue. Um, and and I, the, the challenging part is the now part of it, right? It, and it's because in general, when you try to deal with root causes, you're talking about sort of like generational changes of slowing down the growth of poverty, building up institutions to uphold the rule of law. And, and things like that are very important. And, and the United States, in my opinion, should be doing them, especially in Central America. Um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating moment because actually right now there is no migration. I mean, there, I shouldn't say none. There's very little migration at the border because the United States is not taking any asylum claims uh, and is not processing any sort of legal migrants coming across the, the U.S.-Mexico border due to COVID. And so what we've seen is we've seen the number of Central Americans plummet that are, that are traveling north to the United States. So there is a story right now out about a new caravan that's uh, trying to make their way up north through Guatemala into Mexico. They'll probably be stopped in Mexico before they make it much further, but we don't know exactly how that will play out. Um, but in general, number of Central Americans has dropped to nearly nothing. What, what's interesting about that is that it's left Mexican migration, which is at historic lows, right? It's much, much, you know, it's, it's a, a fraction of what it was uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Uh, and it was the minority when there were a large number of Central Americans, but it's left that now as the majority of migration. And with COVID and with continued high rates of violence in Mexico, there is some concern that if there's, a, if there's a, a spike there, it will change the dynamics of the conversation because it will now be a Mexican spike. Uh, and so that's one possibility that we should be looking at. Is there a possibility of a Mexican spike? It will probably look nothing like the magnitude of these spikes of Central American migrants, uh, but nonetheless, it could have sort of political impact and real impact because it's so hard to deal with migrants right now, given COVID. You know, detaining them is very risky for their own health, for the health of Border Patrol and, and ICE, you know, it's, it's not easy for anyone. Uh, so we may, you know, see some challenges in terms of managing that. I mean, in, in terms of managing that on the ground, if we were to say, okay, so what could the United States do? What could Congress do to try to prevent that spike in Mexico? I mean, honestly, health, health cooperation is useful. Uh, and, you know, pushing the Mexican government to have a fiscal response to the COVID crisis would be useful. Uh, when Mexico spent less than 1% of GDP on countercyclical spending and the United States is spending uh, trillions of dollars on countercyclical spending, you know, the likelihood is that we're going to have an economic recovery much faster in the United States than we will in Mexico. And so that creates that kind of economic imbalance that can draw migrants into the United States. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 um, I'm stretching to try to give you something real concrete and direct that can be done because I think the reality is that root causes are something that you deal with in the long term, uh, much less so in the short term. But obviously, we're in a crisis. And so, you know, it will be something that needs to be managed. I mean, another thing that I would just say that's slightly off the topic of the question, but I think very important is that, you know, the United States-Mexico border has been closed to non-essential travel uh, since COVID started. And we will, we're starting to hear from local leaders in U.S. border communities in South Texas and other places along the border that they think it's time to start 
a process of reopening the border. And so the, the key there is saying, you know, asking yourselves, okay, how do we move from this model of essential travel only to safe travel? And what does that look like at the land border? I mean, are our ports of entry designed so that you can maintain social distance as people are walking across them? In a car, it's not quite as hard because you have your own sort of contained space. Uh, but in the pedestrian environment, that's a big challenge. It's something we need to be planning for, working on, possibly even investing in. Uh, you know, there would be short-term fixes because that's not, you know, we're not going to always operate the border at six feet in between everybody, but we might need to for a while. Uh, and so, you know, what role can Congress play in helping support uh, the management of our border in a safe environment, not just an essential environment, because I think the pressures are going to continue to increase to move in that direction. I, I think there are, I mean, there are three things that spring to mind for me. The first one goes back to the points that I was making earlier on about the Mexican economy, is that Mexico is very much on the wrong track and it needs to turn things around so that it can begin to uh, take advantage of this uh, golden opportunity that is the coming into force of USMCA, as well as the tendency towards nearshoring, which is exacerbated, of course, by the US-China trade conflict. If Mexico wants to take advantage of those opportunities, then it needs to change course in terms of economic policy. And messages from the US Congress are gonna be very, very important for that. Believe me when I say that as every single message that comes from a US uh, congressional representative or senator about, uh, uh, about Mexico is heard loud and clear, not just in the embassy here in Washington, but in Mexico City itself. And it's not just the government that tracks it. Um, there's a whole bunch of folks down there who are in the, uh, the opposition, as well as in the private sector, who look for that kind of message of support people who are terrified that Mexico is going perhaps down the Venezuela route towards a collapse of the, of the free market economy. And I don't believe that that's the case myself, because I think that we're a long way away from that. But it's a very, very worrying trend. And I, 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 I do lose sleep at night worrying about that. So messages from the, from the US Congress on, on Mexico, a congressional hearing on what's going on either in the, the pharmaceutical sector or in the energy sector would cause shockwaves in Mexico and would likely uh, you know, be a, a positive force for change in the country. Why is that important with regards to migration? Because if Mexico's economy collapses because of COVID-19, then, and it doesn't come back again afterwards, be, it doesn't have a strong recovery, then we are gonna see even more Mexicans moving northwards, okay? Second thing, um, I think that uh, we need to have further support for Mexico in its fight against uh, organized crime and drugs. Uh, the Merida Initiative, which is now you know, 13 years old, uh, we need to revisit that. We need to have a look at it. We need to see about how, uh, what Mexico's needs are right now in terms of fighting organized crime. Uh, if the United States is demanding that Mexico does more to stop the flow of drugs northwards, well, how can the United States really help in doing that? And I think that needs to be a very proactive approach on the part of the US Congress, because we're not seeing that from the Trump administration right now. And Congress should recognize that violence is definitely part of the, the problem in Mexico. And in particular, since the pandemic has erupted in Mexico, violence has got worse in the country, not better, um, going against many people's predictions. So continuing support for Merida Initiative, and then building in, of course, some kind of support for Mexico's efforts 
to uh, control migration from Central America, as well as its own migration uh, 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 numbers. And then lastly, I think talking about Central America itself, Central America is, uh, we, and we haven't focused on it here in this, uh, in this presentation, but Central America needs a lot more help. And I think Congress can take the lead on that as well in terms of identifying the real problems that are, that, that are there in the, uh, in the region and the fact that uh, USAID is fundamentally important. And, you know, we, Chris said quite rightly that we're seeing a complete drop-off in terms of Central American migration right now. But that, that just means that there is a lot of, uh, of migration, potential migration building up in, the, in those countries of Central America. And uh, once conditions improve, we will see a flood of people moving forward. Given the disastrous economic situation in Mexico, those people cannot be absorbed into the Mexican economy. Given the disastrous fiscal situation in Mexico, the Mexican government doesn't have the resources to control those Central American flows in the ways that they have been for the last year and a half or so. So I fear that in fact we're moving into uh, a, a, an era or a, a period of time when in fact Central Americans will begin to flood northwards again. And of course that becomes a problem at the US Southwest border. So adopting a longer term approach, providing aid to Mexico, and really beginning to pressure the Mexican government that it needs to change course, all of those are important things to do. I think this has been a, a great uh, overview, and I think certainly something to track as we're uh, looking at a visit next week. And you know, as, as this USMCA gets started, uh, it'll be interesting to see how Mexico is able to implement it with their economic challenges. So any final words from the panelists? Yeah, Aaron, if you don't mind, one, one thing that I wanted to say is just, you know, we've, for the last couple of years, the whole focus of U.S.-Mexico economic relations anyway, has been on getting USMCA accomplished. Uh, and so there's a real open question, you know, what's the next phase? Uh, so there are a lot of options there in terms of how these things could happen, but I think it's really important uh, that Congress play a role in, in sort of pushing the governments to uh, engage in a broader set of economic conversations that can create jobs, prosperity, uh, inclusive growth, you know, get us ready for industries of the future, uh, and provide a space, importantly, to have some of these discussions that Duncan was just talking about in a productive environment with Mexico, right? So, you know, it's good every once in a while to hit Mexico over the head with a, a really critical hearing or something like that. Uh, but it's good to have relationships where you can cajole them uh, as well. And, and these types of forums would be very useful for, for that type of a thing. Uh, but with that, let me just say thanks to everyone. We're always happy to be a resource for you. I'd just add that uh, look out for next week. I mean, next week, there's going to be a lot of attention, obviously, because of the AMLO visit. We'll be launching a new report, which uh, Chris has been spearheading uh, on the U.S.-Mexico relationship. Um, we'll also be uh, hosting a, a seminar on what's happening in the Mexican energy sector. So please look out for that, as well as the, the publications that will be coming out on our website. And uh, as Aaron has said, we're available for, uh, for private conversations uh, on the side anytime you'd like. And please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks for, uh, for being here today. Thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode today. Remember that you can like and subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, we're available at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org.